Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. It's uh, my pleasure to, this morning to talk about a very a kind of esoteric subject that not too many people really know about. It's sort of been kept in the shadows, and yet it's very important because it opens up so many other doors about the whole about the whole um, experience, and it really opens a Pandora's box, actually, because if this story is true, as we all think it is, and I'm sure it is, and that we have sent uh, 12 Americans to a remote planet as early as 1965, then all the other secrets start to tumble away, and uh, that is indeed the case. If we had if we had a, a diplomatic relations with a, with a distant civilization 39 light years away who supplied us with technology and information about the galaxy, just think of what that means. It's a doorway to the, to the entire galaxy. In any case, let's start out. <clears throat> Is everybody ready? Okay. <clears throat> This all started in uh, November of 2005. There's a UFO network called the UFO Thread List, consisting of about 150 people. Uh, most of them are ex-insiders in one way or another, either intelligence or military, and they like to talk to each other on this, on this UFO network. At the time that this began, uh, the list at that time contained about 150 people, including many extremely well-known names in UFO research and or related or leading-edge scientific fields. Those on the list have differing views regarding the truth about this statement. However, they all eventually came to understand that it really happened. Uh, it started with 11 emails sent to the list talking about the fact that uh, we had sent a team of Americans to a planet called Serpo, 39 light years away, on an exchange program. <clears throat> and in return, this civilization sent one of their, of their members here. Uh, our team stayed there for 13 years. And when these emails started to tumble into the list, it woke everybody up and people started responding. Uh, and two or three of them who were in the know said, how does he know this and why is he revealing this? And eventually they all got on board with it and uh, they asked one of the people on the list, Bill Ryan, to, uh, <coughs> to create a website dedicated to this information. So Bill did that. But let me, let me talk a little bit about Anonymous. Um, he was an ex-DIA executive or official who had uh, worked for the DIA all of his life and was now heading up a team of six DIA people, three retired, 
and three still active who wanted this information known. Why now? Why 2005? Well, here's the reason. Uh, this this uh, trip took place in 1965. Uh, it, the 12, the 12, the, the, it all ended in 1980. Thank you. They came back in 1978, and the final report was written in 1980. Uh, the debriefing took place in 1979. It was a full year. And uh, then the final, the final report was written in 1980. So the information was released in 2005 because it was exactly 25 years after the final report was written. And that's what is necessary for all classified information. They must keep it secret for 25 years. After that, it can be released. So Anonymous now had a clear path to releasing it, and he did right on schedule in 2005. November of 2005 was the beginning of this whole thing. Uh, I met Bill Ryan in early 2006, and I got the whole story then, which was about two months after Anonymous had released it. Anonymous was an interesting guy. He would never give his full name. However, he was evidently very high up in the intelligence community. We know that because he was the editor of the Red Book. Uh, the Red Book is an extremely thick very detailed account summary written and compiled by the government on UFO investigations dating from 1947 to the present. It's updated every five years. Uh, what actually occurs is that as UFO reports come in and are denied and are deemed credible uh, by the reporting government agency, whether it's military or civilian, they are routed to a special section of the government for a follow-up analysis. After that vetting process, they are then sent to a special group, which then places them into fi for final review for possible inclusion in the Red Book. Uh, and he says, Anonymous says he knows all this because he says, I have served as the editor for several editions of the Red Book and have written and delivered that, the executive summary for several sitting U.S. presidents. So you know he had to be very high up uh, to be able to do that. <clears throat> so I know of what I speak, and when I say editor, it is not in the sense of the word you are familiar with. I do not correct or review any of the hundreds, if not thousands, of reports which are distilled into the final five-year report for grammar and punctuation. I only present and include the most important, compelling cases in the Red Book, which includes an analysis by me and others of any trends, types of sightings, human contacts with the ETs, and any national security concerns our government or planet may have. My part is to write the executive summary and present it to the current sitting President of the United States. If there was a national security matter that presented itself, that five-year published review of the Red Book would be interrupted but that has never been necessary because we have a good relationship with our visitors. And when he says visitors, he's talking about ETs. And then he goes on to say, we did have visitors from nine other star systems, besides the ones we're dealing with today. Uh, the Greys, of course, they came from a planet near Alpha Centauri. They were not from uh, Zeta Reticuli. Uh, the third class came from a G2 star system in Leo. 
Uh, another class of visitors came from a G2 star system in Epsilon Eridani. The visitors were classified by a code. The code which was classified in itself was ETE1, ETE2, ETE3. The grays were ETE3, and so on. The red book lists nine different visitors. We determined recently that some of the visitors were of the same type of race, but a mechanical life form. Uh, they, were, they were hybrid beings that were created in a laboratory rather than by natural birth. These creatures were more like robots, although they were intelligent and could make decisions. Is this working? Yeah, I guess it is. They might be the hostile visitors that some people believe. So that's anonymous, and he's, retain, he's, he's maintained that posture of never revealing his name. But my own feeling is that if he's, re, if he's giving these reports to the president, he must be on MJ-12, and I believe he was on MJ-12. In any case, at this point in his life, he's probably around 80, and he probably had a lot to do with this, with this program while he was a young man working for the DIA. That's my guess. And he might have been the one my belief is he might have been the one at that time that gave the story to Spielberg because Spielberg took it and ran with it and made the movie Close Encounters. So I think Anonymous was the one that gave him that story. I think Spielberg had some sort of deep throat giving him this information when he made Close Encounters. And uh, it was probably him. And here's Bill. Bill was trained in mathematics and physics and psychology in Bristol University. He, he was a teacher for the last 30 years. He's been a management consultant specializing in personal and team development, leadership training, and executive coaching. Uh, so Bill had the experience with the internet to be able to create the website, and that's why he was chosen. So he did a good job. The website, by the way, is still out there for anybody who's interested. It's been out there for about, uh, let's see, about 14 years now. It was put out there in 2006. I'm sorry, so nine years, nine years. Uh, it's still out there, serpo.org, for those who are interested. If you want to go look at it, please do, but keep in mind there are about 15,000 words, and it's not organized very well, so you're going to have to dig through it, get all the information, but it's there. And uh, you can back up what I'm telling you by going out there and looking at it. So, so Anonymous was faced with a question, with a with a decision as how to release the information. Uh, he decided to release it to the, to the UFO list, who was mo which was moderated by a guy named Victor Martinez. Victor is an ex-teacher, former US government employee. All we have for Victor is this, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't give us an up-to-date photo. Uh, Victor is a former government employee. He worked for a number of different federal law enforcement agencies. He has a long-standing personal interest in the subject of UFOs. Uh, he had been contacted by Anonymous. Anonymous contacted him, and Victor was the one responsible for bringing Bill Ryan into the picture and asking him to do the website. Uh, Anonymous had several options at his disposal. He could have released it to CBS, NBC, and uh, Victor says this, CNN, CBS, NBC, ABC, 60 Minutes, Dateline, 2020, others would have demanded that the story be verified by the White House itself. 
meaning either Bush or Cheney at that time, or one of their subordinates with their implicit knowledge and permission, would have signed off on such a disclosure before being made public. Now, does anyone really believe that the single most secretive presidential administration in the past 50 years, I should say secretive, not secretive, uh, or so would sign off on verifying such a highly classified report? Does anyone in their right mind imagine that the White House spokesman is saying to one of these major news media outlets, oh yeah, wow, so you found out, someone leaked it to you guys. Okay, cat's out of the bag, go ahead, tell everybody. That's never gonna happen. So that's why he released it to the, only to his uh, inner group. The Defense Intelligence Agency, many of you may not know what that is. In 1960, when uh, Kennedy became president, uh, he was, relied heavily on the CIA, and that was a big mistake for him. Uh, they were not very cooperative. And I think all of you probably know about the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the problems he had with the CIA in terms of the Bay of Pigs. So he and McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense at that time, decided to create a whole new intelligence agency, and they created the DIA. Uh, the DIA is a Department of Defense Combat Support Agency. The, the purpose of the DIA was to bring all the intelligence agencies of the, of the militaries together into one uh, overall intelligence agency. And it had to be militarily related, defense related, whereas the CIA is not really defense related. CIA is civilian, it's a civilian agency. By bringing the Army intelligence, the Navy intelligence, the Air Force intelligence together, they would get a better view, but really what it was all about was he was having his problems with the CIA. So they created a whole new intelligence agency in 1960. And when this story came up, well, let me give you a little bit of information about the DIA. They say our mission is to satisfy the military and military-related intelligence requirements of the Secretary of Defense. We plan, manage, and execute intelligence operations during peacetime, crisis, and war. We serve as the DOD lead for coordinating intelligence support to meet uh, battlefield conditions. Our employees travel the world and meet and work closely with other professionals. Let me show you their current headquarters in Washington. Uh, we offer our employees personal development through many education, blah, 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 blah. Okay, we'll talk about that. In any case, when Kennedy became president in 1960 and was informed about this exchange program, he decided to give the whole thing to the DIA because the Bay of Pigs uh, had caused a tremendous rift between Kennedy and, uh, I'm just gonna go back to, between Kennedy and um, the CIA. They blamed the failure of the Bay of Pigs on Kennedy. He blamed it on them. They said they didn't get air support. He told them he would not give them air support. They claimed that these guys got killed on, because they didn't get air support. So a lot of people think that's why he was assassinated. That's a, that's a very complicated story in itself. I don't wanna get into that right now. But in any case, uh, let me go back here. Uh, 
Kennedy decided to give the whole thing to the DIA. And that was very fortunate. And that's the reason we're here today, because uh, if he had given it to the CIA, we never, would have, we never would have gotten the story today. But the DIA was dedicated to transparency. Kennedy was dedicated to transparency. Kennedy did not believe in secrecy. So the DIA got the story, got the uh, program. And uh, that's how it came, became to be released 25 years later. Let me go back here one minute. When this story was released in November of 2005 to the, to the uh, UFO thread list, 150 people, UFO magazine got right on it and uh, th did a cover story on it right away. So this was from early 2006. Many of you may know about Bill Burns, the editor of uh, UFO magazine. He saw it immediately as a very important story. And uh, he put a, he put a a story in that, that issue, that early issue of, 2000, of UFO magazine. Uh, and in that story, how many of you have heard of Richard Doty? I'm just curious. Richard Doty was a, a, was a member of the, of the U.S. Air Force uh, Office of Special Investigation. And Doty wrote an article on Serpo for um, that issue of magazine. And here's some of the things he says in that article. Uh, we can hypothesize that Anonymous may not even have had access to the 3,000-page to the document at all. Uh, Anonymous hardly has this report in his living room just sitting there like a Sears catalog. So such a report would be guarded under the tightest security and the conditions of access highly restricted. It's worth remembering that it was not Anonymous who first mentioned the 3,000-page report. That was Paul McGovern. Uh, as for the photos, everyone, of course, wanted to see the photos of Serpo. If we sent 12 people to a distant planet, where are the photos? Where are the videos? They were kept under tight control. Needless to say, when the photos, if and when the photos get revealed or released, it breaks wide open. As for the photos, they may again be in a different location, maybe not even in the U.S. Suppose Anonymous is receiving his information from a retired person uh, who, has, who was involved in Project Serpo, who is, for example, now living in Thailand, Australia, or South Africa. The point is that if this story is 90% true, or even 10% true, it's still the story of the millennium. Some people cannot believe that 12 American astronauts, they weren't actually astronauts, could have made a trip to another planet nearly 40 light years away in 1965. It's just too much of a leap to believe it. And many of the UFO people that I know still do not believe it. They just can't buy it. Okay, let's proceed here. It all started with Roswell. Uh, in my book, uh, Secret Journey to Planet Serpo, I talked about the fact that we sent a team of, uh, we, sent a, we sent a military task force to Antarctica in late 1946. 
headed up by Admiral Byrd. How many people have heard about Operation High Jump? We sent a team of 13 warships and a task force of 4,700 Marines to Antarctica to destroy the Nazi base, which we knew was there because the British had already found it. Everyone knew it was there. Uh, when, when Byrd's task force got to Antarctica, UFOs came out of the water and engaged the whole team, and they destroyed at least one ship. 68 Marines were killed, so Byrd had to turn around and go back, and he was furious. It was supposed to have been a six-month operation, turned into a two-month operation, and he, he spoke before Congress. He was questioned, and he, he told them that he thought that we should turn Antarctica into a thermonuclear test range because he knew that the Nazi base there was possibly, uh, could, could possibly revive World War II and come and invade the United States. And if they had weapons like uh, UFOs and saucers, it would be over before it began. So uh, Congress didn't like the fact that Byrd was so outspoken. They told him they didn't want him giving any more, any more uh, interviews, and actually he ended up in a mental institution, and they kept him there. So uh, Congress and various committees met and tried to decide what to do about the continuing Nazi presence. It was even a possibility that Hitler might still be alive, and actually he was. And the FBI knew it. He was in Argentina. So Hitler could be directing a return of the, of the Third Reich. This time there would be the Fourth Reich. And there was a lot of panic in Congress. What are we going to do about this? So uh, they thought about perhaps doing what Byrd had, had suggested, starting to use the nuclear option. And they thought it would blow a hole in the iron, uh, what do you call it, the, the, uh, the, the atmosphere. And as they were pondering this problem, an alien craft crashed into the desert in, outside of Roswell, New Mexico, and it became a whole new ball game because we now had the possibility of developing the same technology with the aliens as friends. So uh, there is no question that Roswell was indeed an alien craft. Uh, and we know that, well, how do we know that? Because the uh, CIA briefed President Reagan on the whole thing in 1981. Here's what they said. They said, uh, Mr. President, the United States of America has been visited by extraterrestrial visitors since 1947. This is the CIA talking now, not even the DIA. Uh, we have proof of that, however, we have also taken some proof, we have some proof also that the Earth has been visited for many thousands of years by various races of extraterrestrial visitors. Mr. President, I'll just refer to those visits as ETs. In July 1947, a remarkable event occurred in New Mexico. During a storm, two ET spacecraft crashed. One crashed southwest of Corona, New Mexico and one crashed near Dayteal, New Mexico. Uh, the U.S. Army eventually found both sites and recovered all of the debris and one live alien. I'll refer to this live alien as EBE. -E. 
Here's the first uh, crashed disc. This uh, this this uh, this artwork by David Hardy is still is still incredible, and I use it all the time. It's really a great really a great uh, visual thing to look at. But here's a here's a conception of the second disc, which crashed crashed intact, but it wasn't found for two years. Uh, by that time, the six aliens on board had been completely, uh, as you can see in this photo, completely decomposed. And so, but it was exactly the same as the other craft. And the entities on board were the same. And here's what he says. Um, the president says, what does that mean? Do we have codes or a special terminology for this? The caretaker says, Mr. President, EBE means extraterrestrial biological entity. It was a code designated to this creature by the US Army back in those days. This creature was not human, and we had to decide on a term for it. So scientists designated the creature EBE-1. We also referred to it as NOAA, N-O-A-H, for some reason. I have no idea why. There was a different terminology used by various aspects of the US military. So Reagan says, do we or did we have others? The number one would seem to indicate we had others. The caretaker says, yes, we had others. Back then, the term was EBE and no number designation. We'll explain how the others came into our knowledge. The president says, OK, sorry, I was just wondering. And I guess while I'm sure the briefing will cover this, please continue. All the debris and the EBEs recovered from their first crash site were taken to Roswell Army Air Base. Uh, New Mexico EBE was treated for some minor injuries and was then taken to Los Alamos National Laboratories, which was the safest and most secure location in the world. If he had been taken to the Pentagon, which is right in a busy intersection in Northern Virginia, it wouldn't have been very secure. Special accommodations were made for the alien. The, the debris was eventually transferred to Dayton, Ohio, home of the Air Force Foreign Technology Division. The second crash site wasn't discovered until 1949 by some ranchers. Uh, there were no live aliens at this site. All this debris went to Sandia Army Base in Albuquerque. The president says, OK, a question. Regarding the first site, how many aliens were in the spaceship? The caretaker says, five dead aliens and one live and one alive. The bodies of the dead were transported to Wright Field in Ohio and kept in a form of deep freeze. Uh, they were later transported to Los Alamos, where special containers were made to keep the bodies from decaying. There were four dead aliens. I'm sorry, there were four in the second crash site, not six. Those bodies were in an advanced state of decay. They had been in the desert for the two years. Animals and time got to these bodies. The remains were transported to Sandia Base and eventually on to Los Alamos. We determined that both crashed spaceships were of similar design and the bodies of the aliens were all identical. Uh, they looked exactly the same. They had the same height, weight, and physical features. Here are the photographs, Mr. President. And there's a pause while the president looks at the photographs. Uh, and the president says, can we classify them? I mean, can we contact them with anything, connect them with anything on Earth? And the caretaker says, no, Mr. President. They don't have any similar characteristics of a human, with the exception of their eyes, ears, and a mouth. Their internal body organs are different, their skin is different, their eyes, ears, and even breathing is different. Their blood wasn't red, and their brain was entirely different from human. We could not classify any part of the aliens with humans. 
They had blood and skin, although considerably different than human skin. The president says, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead, but do we know where they came from? Mars or our system or where? They said, no, they came from a planet 39 light years away. So that's the story of Roswell. That's the story of the briefing. Anyone who still doubts, anyone who still doubts that Roswell took place or that there were alien craft, uh, I think you should review this material. I knew it. This is an alien, and you guys are from some government agency trying to keep it under wraps. So there's the survivor. This, uh, this, this artwork by Jim Nichols I still like to use, even though he's got the wrong configuration of the spaceship, because it shows the alien creeping away. And uh, here's basically what they looked like. Now this uh, particular art, this particular sculpture was done by Cynthia Crawford. Anybody here know who Cynthia Crawford is? Cynthia lives in Phoenix. Uh, she gets psychic impressions of what all the aliens look like. And she gets them verified by another psychic and she does sculptures of all of them. So she, at her booth she's got uh, little statues of all the aliens from all, over the, from all over the galaxy and beyond the galaxy. So if you, if you ever get a chance to, to see her or talk to her or visit her booth, you're going to be amazed. Anyway, this is her uh, rendition of the Evans. And it, so, it does match up with uh, what we just learned and what was reported by one of the witnesses, who I'll get, get into in a minute, named Frank Kaufman. Uh, before we get to Kaufman, um, Kaufman is not very well known, but there were several, there were several TV shows about, about Roswell where they did talk to Kaufman, some of the early shows. He was there, he was a, a staff sergeant, I believe, and he saw the bodies. Uh, and he was interviewed by, I think, I think that uh, he was interviewed by Stanton, I'm not sure. In any case, here is what Frank Kaufman said about what he saw. Want to play the video? Time hiding it, they get curious. Tell me about the aliens. Tell me about the bodies that were found. Were they good-looking people? Or were they? Oh yeah, they were. They were. They didn't have any of these, you know, slanted eyes or horny fingers, you know, anything like that. They were. I don't know whether you want to call them people or so. I call them people because that's what I'm accustomed to looking at somebody as people, see. They were good-looking people. You know, uh, fine-skinned. They were kind of ash-colored. That was the color of their skin. Eyes were just a little bit larger than ours, you know, more pronounced. Small nose, a little small mouth, very small ears, see. No hair. Uh, very fine features, very well built, maybe 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five in height. That's what I could remember seeing. Um, Frank, in your personal opinion, what happened here in 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico? What is your bottom line? That in 1947, I can only put it this way, that a craft of unknown origin crashed north of Roswell. It was recovered with bodies, not of this earth, which proved that we are not alone in this vast universe of ours. Okay, that's Frank. 
I think he was one of the most credible witnesses for Roswell, and I think Don Schmidt uh, missed out when he didn't report more about Kaufman. Uh, the alien was taken to uh, Los Alamos and uh, questioned there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But something else happened that was quite interesting. Some of the, some of the military people realized that that little craft that crashed at Roswell could, could not possibly have come from a distant star system. It was too small to make an interstellar journey. That there had to be other craft perhaps in a mothership circling the Earth. But we'll talk about that in a minute. In any case, they talked to this alien at length and uh, eventually the alien revealed that he had a communication device on the crashed craft that allowed him to communicate with his home planet. They were able to eventually talk to him because even though his language was very difficult to comprehend. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, they taught him English, basically. And one of his military handlers became very adept at communicating with him and uh, talked about the, the device that he had on board the craft. The alien remained alive at Los Alamos for five years. And towards the end of that period, which would have been the summer of 1952, one of the scientists at Los Alamos realized that if they could take this communication device back to the craft and power it up with the power unit on the craft, it might work. So they did that, and it worked. So it was interesting that the Earthling came up with this, not the alien. You know, it was, it was an Earth scientist that realized that. In any case, from that point on, uh, EBE-1 began communicating with his uh, planet. And uh, he sent six messages to his planet. By the way, speaking about his language, here's, here's a report by an American uh, language specialist who was brought in to try and bridge the gap between the two. He says, I'm a retired Army colonel. I was stationed at the Defense Language Institute in the early 50s. My specialty was languages. I spoke five different languages. I was sent on a temporary duty assignment to the Special Intelligence Center at Fort Belvoir, Maryland in 1964. When I arrived, I was given a dictaphone recording of a language. I listened to that language and realized it was something I had never heard before. It didn't sound like a language, but more like pitches and tones created by some device. I was later told this language was an alien language and that I, along with others, would have to somehow translate it. Our team of 18 language specialists worked on this for six months and couldn't crack it. I then learned of a special operation mission of 12 astronauts to an alien planet. The 12 had to learn this language. But it was almost impossible for us to teach a language like this. We never did learn a single word, and to the best of my knowledge, neither did the astronauts. And if all of you have seen the movie Close Encounters, you remember that in that movie, uh, which was based on this event, they had to communicate with tones. Spielberg did a good job of putting that together and making that uh, interesting. So Spielberg must have had this information. He probably did. Here's the, uh, here's the alien alphabet. And as you can see, <laughs> it's horrendous and overwhelming. 
But the alien at, uh, at uh, Los Alamos gave them this. They couldn't do anything with it. Here are the six messages that the uh, alien sent before he died in 1952. The first message was just letting his planet know that he was alive. The second message explained the crash in 47 and the death of his crew. Third message asked for a rescue craft for him. The fifth message suggested an exchange program. Now here's the beginning of the exchange program, right here, being sent from EBE-1 to his planet, which we now know was named Serpo. We found that out later. The sixth message provided landing coordinates for any future re rescue or visitation mission to Earth and confirmed a, a landing location. These locations were worthless because he didn't understand our, our uh, planetary coordinates at that time, so that didn't do much good. But in any case, he tried. And then uh, in the summer of 52, he died. Now, the scientists at Los Alamos realized that this little craft did not come 39 light years all by itself with six little guys on it. They, th they thought there must be a mothership in orbit and there must be other craft that can come down here. So they used the communication device to make, try and make that arrangement and they did. They did, they made an arrangement for the aliens to send another craft down to Earth. That craft came down in Kingman, Arizona in May of 1952. Uh, that craft did not crash, it landed. And uh, it was meant to land at the Nevada test site, but they missed it. So it crashed in the Serbot Mountains north of uh, Kingman. And um, this four, the four aliens on board were perfectly okay. Two of them were a little hurt, but two were fine. And uh, we got there quickly. Now, how did we get there? We got there with a tank trailer in, a, in the middle of these mountains, which are pretty formidable. And uh, the only way they could have done that is if they were in touch with Serpo. Serpo came back and contacted the aliens, and together they got the locations, the coordinates, and immediately we had a tank trailer there. The tank trailer took the thing on, it up, put it on the tank trail and they, and they took it up to uh, the Nevada test site where it was supposed to go in the first place. And the only reason we know about all of this is because a, a MUFON investigator by the name of Ray Fowler did a lot of heavy research about this. Uh, and he found a guy by the name of, uh, he met a guy by the name of Stansel and uh, he called himself Werner at that time. He didn't give his real name. And Stansel said that he was taken to the crash site and asked to, to estimate the speed at which the craft landed. And it was only like 100 knots. So it was going very slowly. So it didn't crash, it really landed. And he was taken there in a blacked out bus from Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix, along with 14 other guys who were asked to look at this crash site and tell, tell the uh, Air Force more about it. And he said that as they escorted him to see the, uh, cra see the craft, he peeked into a tent that was nearby and it was lit up 
And in that tent, he saw a dead alien laying on a, on a bed. And the alien was, uh, was ash-colored. And uh, he thought they had really scooped everybody because he, he peeked into that tent. Well, when he was done with his estimate of the landing and all the other 14 people also, this Air Force colonel came on board the bus and asked them to raise their right hand and promised they would never tell anybody about this. This was very lightweight treatment because in most cases, people who have seen aliens or been in touch with them are given a death threat if they re reveal anything. They were just told not to tell anybody. So, naturally, they all peeked into the tent and they all saw the dead alien laying there and the Air Force knew that and the Air Force wanted them to report back that, hey, there was one, ed one dead alien on that craft and that's the end of the game. No, there were four and they were all alive. So it was a, it was a neat piece of theater put on by the Air Force to convince these 15 guys that they'd just seen the one dead alien on board that craft and he was dead. Meanwhile, the real four aliens were taken to Los Alamos on a bus. They were gone already. So um, we found that out later because um, this memo was sent in to the, to the Serpo website talking about that whole incident and basically saying uh, a bizarre situation was encountered at the retrieval site with the entities removed from the areas. Work proceeded to clean up and load the vessel on a tank trailer used to haul Sherman tanks. While these preparations were being made, an entry crew was formed. They were dressed in clean room clothing with medical surgical masks. The size of the crew was not mentioned in communications. What happened with the entry crew while inside of the vessel, so, so, so our people entered the vessel after the four aliens were taken to Los Alamos. We put a team together to go into the craft and describe what was going on in there. They were dressed in clean room clothing with medical surgical masks. The size of the crew was not mentioned. What happened with the entry crew while inside of the vessel was noted as follows. Communications failed. The crew, after one hour inside, emerged from the craft confused with upset stomachs. They removed their masks and threw up. What was astonishing, they could not remember any of the details inside the craft. Uh, it was sealed, camouflaged, loaded, and shipped to an undisclosed Nevada test facility. The entry crew was sent to Facility X to undergo medical examinations. Now keep in mind that we had already set up a little a little uh, habitat for the first alien who died in 52. So we already had that. And these were, the same, these were of the same race as the original alien. So they were, they were sent to the same Los Alamos location. Uh, a medical facility was manned by doctors, bioastronautic physicists, chemists, and linguists were all there. At this time, communications was limited to basic sign language. So, now, putting all this together, we now have the second Ros we have a second craft from the same alien uh, civilization sent down to help us and from which we could reverse engineer our own. They were very helpful. They were very friendly, the aliens. And uh, we started working on that immediately at the Nevada test site. The, uh, 
the four live aliens were very incommunicative. They weren't very helpful, really, except one of them did strike up a friendship with one of the Air Force people, and uh, that made the difference. Now, uh, after, the, after this craft was taken to the Nevada test site, we, we brought in some engineers, some very, uh, very uh, experienced uh, air, aeronautical engineers to work on it. And one of them was an ex-Marine pilot by the name of Bill Uhouse. Anybody here know about Bill Uhouse? Okay. Uh, Bill's job was to look at this alien craft at Area 51, which was now at S4. So Lazar was correct, it was at S4. Was to look at this and begin to, be begin to build a simulator. We had to train pilots for this, this craft, after we built it. And uh, Uhouse's job was to build the simulator to train the pilots so they could fly this thing. And this all began in 1953. Remember, this craft came down at, came down at uh, Kingman in, in May of 1953. Here's Bill Uhouse talking about what he did. Oh, two in those aircraft. Well, I was at uh, Wright-Patterson, of course. I was approached by an individual that and I, I'm not going to mention his name, uh, to determine if I wanted to work in a, uh, an area on just new creative things, okay? And apparently that was a, a flying disc simulator. What they had done, they had selected uh, several of us and they uh, reassigned me to a Link Aviation, which was a simulator manufacturer. Uh, at that time, they were building what they call the C-11B and F-102 simulator, B-47 simulator, and so forth. And they wanted us to get the experience before we actually uh, uh, started work on the flying disc simulator, which uh, I spent 30-some years working on. The simulator wasn't actually functional until around 1958, where uh, the simulator was actually operable. The craft that they used to build, which is a 30-meter one, was the one that they crashed in uh, uh, Arizona, uh, uh, Kingman, Arizona, uh, back in 53 or 52. I think it was 53. That's the one they used. That's the first one that they took out to the test site. Uh, it landed about 15 miles from uh, which used to be an Army Air Base, uh, which is now a defunct Army Base. I forget, the, I, rec I can't recall the name of it. <coughs> but that particular craft, there were some problems with number one, getting it on the flatbed to take it up to Area 51. They couldn't get it across uh, the dam because of the road. It had to be barged across the, you know, uh, the Colorado River at the time, and then taken up to uh, where people go now, up, uh, up 93, uh, out to Area 51, which was uh, uh, just being re really constructed at the time, and taken down those dirt roads and out, out to that particular area of the test site. There were four uh, aliens aboard that thing. And those aliens went to Los Alamos, and they put uh, 
certain people into there in there with them, uh, people that uh, you know were astrophysicists, you know, uh, uh, just general scientists, you know, uh, to ask them questions. Uh, the, funny, the way the story was told to me was there was only one of them that would talk to any to to any of these scientists that they put in the lab with them. Only one of the aliens. The rest wouldn't talk to anybody, or you know, even have a conversation with them. You know, first they thought you know it was all you know ESP or you know what do I want to what do I want to say uh, telepathy? Te yeah, mental telepathy. But you know, most of that's most of that is kind of a joke to me because they actually speak uh, uh, maybe not like we do, but uh, they they actually speak and can converse, you know. The difference between this aircraft and, and or this disc and other, other discs that they had looked at was that it was much simpler design. In the simulator, it was one, one big thing different. The thing that, like Lazar calls the reactor, okay, we didn't have a reactor. We had a, we had a, a space in a thing that looked like the reactor, but that wasn't the thing we operated the simulator with. We operated with six uh, uh, large capacitors that were charged with uh, a million volts each. Say there were six million volts in those capacitors. They're largest capacitors ever built. Uh, these particular capacitors, they last for 30 minutes. So you could get in there and actually work the controls and do what you had to, to uh, uh, Get the aircraft or get the simulator, the, the, the disc operate. Okay. Actually, when it, when it was operable, it would lift off the ball about a certain amount of. of, of uh, there was a, a dimension there that we had that it actually lifted up, and it could actually turn. You know, a certain certain amount of degrees left to right or whatever. In a simulator now, uh, you'll notice that. Uh, there are no seat belts, right? Uh, and the same thing with the actual craft, no seat belts. You don't need seat belts. Because when you fly one of these things upside down, there's no upside down like in a regular aircraft. You just don't feel it. Uh, you have your own gravitational field right inside. So if you're flying upside down, to you, you're right side up. There weren't any windows. The only place we had any uh, visibility at all, and it was done with uh, <clears throat> with cameras or video type things at that time, was in the turret, in the turret section. It takes a lot of time because of the area and, and the smallness of it. Just to raise your hand, it becomes complicated. You have to be trained train with your mind, you know, to, to accept what you're going to actually feel and, and So there's some experience. perceptual distortion. There's a lot of distortion, yeah. 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 Seeing, uh, just moving about, it's a, it's a... After a while, after you get used to it and all, and you, and you do it, it's, it's, it's simple. You just, you got to know where everything is, you know, and you got to understand what's going to happen to your body. It's no different than... You know, accepting the G-forces, you know, when you're flying a, a aircraft or coming out of a dive, you know, and that kind of thing. It's a So that was Bill.
describing it, and that, that confirms the fact that they brought the Kingman craft to uh, Area 51, and he worked on it with a team of other, other uh, engineers and scientists. Uh, what he said was that every once in a while they'd run into a mathematical problem, they need some help, they said, bring in the alien. And so this was the alien that they brought in. You'll notice he does not look like anything we've seen about uh, the Eben. The Ebens were not cooperative mathematically, but we had others. We had other aliens working with us, and here's one of them. And Bill Uhouse drew this sketch of the alien and somehow got it out to the, to the, to the world. And this is what he looked like. And he would answer, when they came some, some, some really heavy mathematical problems, he would help them. They did have problems in translation, but uh, he was very helpful, and of course, he was a scientist. Uh, Kennedy then, so they worked on this craft until 1958. In 1958, Uhouse succeeded in building the simulator. By 1962, we had a working anti-gravity aircraft, identical perhaps to the Kingman craft. This was, this was at the point at which Kennedy became president. They did not tell Kennedy anything about this developmental work. He was kept in the dark about certain things, but he was told about the uh, so-called exchange program. Kennedy, of course, from the very beginning, wanted some sort of a triumph in space because when he became president at the same time, the Soviets had just sent uh, Yuri Gargarin, Gargarin in orbit around the Earth, so they were ahead of us. They were way ahead of us. And Kennedy was determined to make space his priority. This is a speech he gave at Rice University, uh, September the 12th, 1962. Many years ago, the great British explorer, George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it. He said, because it is there. Well, space is there, and we're going to climb it, and the moon and the planets are there, and new, hope, new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. So that was his speech in 62, and this was after the Bay of Pigs. As, as all of you know, the Bay of Pigs was a disaster. Uh, but uh, eight days after Gargarin went in space, around the, when it went around the globe, Kennedy sent the, fo the following memo to Werner von Braun. He shot, off a no, he shot off a memo to Vice President Johnson. He said, do we have a chance of beating the Soviets by putting a laboratory in space, or by a trip around the moon, or by a rocket to land on the moon, or by a rocket to go to the moon and back with a man, is there any other space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win? Kennedy was deeply committed to the new frontier, which was space. Von Braun sent back, uh, by the way, it clearly demonstrates the importance of this subject to Kennedy when you realize that this memo to Johnson was sent only three days after the Bay of Pigs. In fact, just the previous day, several members of the invasion force had been executed by the Castro regime, and yet he was still, that was the up, utmost thought in his mind. Uh, 
Here's what von Braun replied to Johnson. He said, we have an excellent chance of beating the Soviets to the first landing of a crew on the moon. With an all-out crash program, I think we could accomplish this objective in 1967, 1968, uh, and have them return safely to Earth. We would have complete details about a civilization on a distant planet, planet which would be a window into the universe of an incalculable value. So Kennedy was not know, did not know about the, the uh, reverse engineering program at the Nevada test site. He wasn't told about that. But he was told about the, the, uh, the exchange program. And he was asked to approve the exchange program. Uh, naturally, from what I've just told you, he was very anxious for a, a triumph in space. So sending 12 Americans to a distant planet, he approved it, of course. He said, yes, let's do it. And uh, from that moment on, that started the whole program into motion. Here he is with Von Braun at uh, Redstone Arsenal, talking about a space shot. This is a classic photo. Everybody has this photo now. Everybody shows it. So now he gave the green light to the exchange program that was started 10 years previously by EB number one. Now Kennedy's the president. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go to this planet. That started the wheels in motion. The first order of business was to select a team to go to Serpo. At that time, we didn't know the name of the planet. Uh, we had difficulty, as I just pointed out, communicating with the aliens, so we didn't know where they were from. We only knew that they were 39 light years away. Uh, the, the whole job was put in the hands of the Air Force. It was up to the Air Force to find the team and put the training together, the selection together, the training program. They had, they had the job of putting it all together. So uh, this, this report comes from a British guy who was an MI6. MI6 is the British version of the CIA. Um, he was involved in the selection of the astronauts. Here's what he says. It was sent into the Serpo website by him anonymously. He said the advertisement which was sent out asked anyone interested in volunteering for a space program to apply. It was a semi-classified announcement. The disguise was that the USAF was selecting a special team to travel to the moon. And these people must undergo special training and a special selection process. Uh, none of the military people trying out for this team ever knew the real mission at that point. They thought they were going to go to the moon. Um, 500 people applied and it narrowed down to about 160. But there was a problem. Some specialists required on the mission were missing. Beside the requirement called for each team member to be single, Never married, no children, and if possible, an orphan. <laughs> they didn't want to have any attachments at all. So these were not easy people to find. So they had to go out and uh, recruit two doctors for the mission. They couldn't find two doctors from the Air Force or from the military that would meet the requirements. Uh, they finally narrowed it down to 16 people, 12, 12 uh, originals and four alternates. In that, in that group of 16, there were two women. Now, 
this is a controver this is a controversial uh, uh, item here because anonymous says that two women were included in the team of twelve. However, that's contradicted by other testimony. It, what, probably what happened was this: there may have been two women in the group of sixteen, and uh, they were in the they were in the alternate category. They were not chosen. So they were not in the group of 12. The group of 12, they were all men. And that, that has become uh, confirmed by several people. Then these people were uh, the 12, and actually the 16 had to be sheep dipped. Anybody know what sheep dipped is? Yeah. What? The names are just obliterated. Right, the names were obliterated. They, were, uh, they, they wanted to sever all existing connections to Earth except those with the mission personnel. Uh, according to the article in Time Magazine, uh, sheep dip it was something they used for prisoners, and uh, it took away their identities, complete identities, and all their information, all their documents, uh, even IRS documents, medical, everything was taken away and destroyed. And they were assigned a three-digit number as their new identity. So now we had, we had the team finally assembled. And this is the team, and these are their new identities. The team commander was 102, assistant team commander, team pilot number one, two, linguist number one, linguist number two, biologist, scientist, two scientists, two doctors, and a security guy. That's the team. And they were sent to, does anybody know about the CIA training facility called the farm? We call it the farm. It's in, um, it's near um, Williamsburg, Virginia. That's where the CIA guys go to get trained. So they were sent there to be trained, and they had their own little community within the CIA facility. Uh, that's camp. It's called Camp Peary. Uh, the training was intense. For confinement training, each team member was locked inside a five by seven foot box, uh, buried seven feet underground for seven, for five days with just food and water. So if they had any tendency toward claustrophobia, they would have cracked up. But fortunately, they were completely, uh, that, 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 that was taken into consideration when they selected these people because anybody with a tendency to claustrophobia could not go on this trip. And if they survived that particular test in that coffin, then they knew they were okay. Um, so the training, the main training took place at Camp Peary, and uh, it was around eight months. This is an entrance, this is the entrance to the farm. I think anyone who's seen any movies with Tom Cruise, remember he makes reference to farm boys? in his movies, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about CIA guys who were trained at the farm. They also had to be sent to Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida for high altitude training. Uh, they were also sent to Chile and Mexico for special training. They still think they're going to the moon at this point. They don't know. They are not, they are not informed about their actual mission until the training is nearly completed. By the way, here's their training uh, curriculum. Introduction to space exploration. They had to study all of these things. Astronomy, 
Eben anthropology, remember we got this information from EB number one. Eben history, basic information. Uh, medical training, trauma care, high altitude training, survival, escape and evasion training. Basic weapons and explosive training, psychological operations, and anti-interrogation. They thought they were going to be interrogated. Uh, intelligence gathering course, which was perfect for people at, uh, at the farm because they knew how to teach that. Space geology, physical stress, and here's number 14, methods to cope with confinement and isolation. That's what we just talked about. Uh, nutrition course, equipment and training, basic biology, and other, this is interesting, other training which is still considered extremely high, cl highly classified even after 40 years. So that gives you a hint about what they were taught. Uh, now April 24th, 1964, they're ready to go. But let's talk about something else first. Uh, we all know that President Kennedy was killed in 63. Uh, the, the first landing was supposed to be April 24th, 1964. So it seems to me that probably he was going to make it public. Knowing Kennedy and his dedication to transparency and his aversion of secrecy of any kind, and of course he wanted a space triumph so he could make this announcement that we're about to send 12 Americans to a distant planet. Perhaps it had something to do with his assassination. I don't know. There were many other reasons, many other people who did not like uh, Kennedy, especially in the CIA. So the mafia, we don't know. In any case, he was, he was not able to witness this historic event. So the whole thing was turned over to Johnson. And Johnson was asked, do you want to go through with this or not? in uh, early 64. Johnson said that he didn't think they'd come anyway. He said, sure, go ahead with it. Uh, he didn't believe that they would land anyway. So he said, yes. So April 24th, 1964, uh, they're supposed to land. The first landing of the alien craft is supposed to be at Holloman Air Force Base, which is just adjacent to White Sands Proving Ground. I think you all know that. Uh, right next to it. It's actually the westernmost border of Holloman. Um, so now we have 16 uh, officers, military officers, uh, intelligence officers waiting for the landing at Holloman Air Force Base. And uh, the ceremonial thing is all, is all planned already. The team, the team is ready to go. They're sitting on a bus waiting for the alien craft to land truckloads of uh, four tons of equipment. I'll talk about that in a minute. It's sitting there in a trailer. Uh, and they're ready to go. The first craft got, got confused and they landed near Socorro, New Mexico instead of at Holloman. Does everyone here know about the Lonnie Zamora incident? April 24th, 1964, a New Mexico state policeman is called because they, somebody saw this craft sitting in the middle of the desert with two small people standing next to it. And uh, it came down on a column of flame and loud roar. 
So Zamora races to the uh, site, and uh, he drops his glasses, he runs after it, and uh, calls for help. And meanwhile, the aliens see that he is there, and they take off, and he watches it go up into the air on this, on this column of flame and smoke, and zoom away. Uh, this, this incident, this Zamora incident, which took place on April 24th, 1964, which was the date of arrival, which was the planned date of arrival of the alien craft. They sent two craft. This one got confused and landed in the wrong place. Um, so uh, we sent a message to the craft, and eventually they found the right landing place. But this confirms the fact, this incident confirms the fact, the date is the same, that they came on April 24th, 1964. Uh, here's something that was said about the Zamora incident. Zamora, this, is, this is in Wikipedia. Zamora only caught a brief sight of the two people in white coveralls inside the, inside the car. It looked like a car, he thought it was upside down. He recalls nothing special about them. I don't recall noting any particular shape or possibly any hats or headgear. These persons appeared normal in shape, but possibly they were small adults or large kids. This confirms what Kaufman said about them. So here we have confirmation about what the uh, Evens look like. Now this, this uh, comment was sent in to uh, YouTube by somebody obviously in the know who signed it S4. He said, this was supposedly a planned visit between the aliens and the US military, but the aliens landed at the wrong spot, exclamation point. They were to land and did eventually at the nearby Air Force Base, which was Holloman. So here we have confirmation linking the Lonnie Zamora incident and um, the visit on April, in April 1964. The aliens landed uh, finally at Holloman. They had a canopy set up and they walked under the canopy, uh, and we had 16 officials waiting for them, and they presented us with this gift to the human race called the Yellow Book. The Yellow Book was an incredible piece of technology. Um, let's see. By the way, before we leave this subject, I just want to, uh, when the Serpo website was set up, they invited anybody else who knew anything about it to send in their information. Uh, this was one of the messages that was sent in. I just want to read this before we talk about the yellow book. Quote, I was involved in Project Crystal Knight. It was given the name Project Crystal Knight from about 1960 until 1965. I was assigned as a civilian to this project. I was a CIA employee with a specialty of survival in a foreign environment. I was a training instructor at the CIA training camp in Virginia. I trained the 12 men, no women, who went on this mission. They spent about eight months at our training facility. Few knew their exact mission, which was classified top secret slash code word. That's the highest possible secrecy. I had no other involvement with this mission until after 1965. I was very surprised to hear this story come to light now after all these years. So there's some, there's some confirmation. Here's uh, somebody from Tyndall sent this in. He said, I was involved with this program years ago. 
I was an Air Force captain assigned to a training element at Tyndall Air Force Base. We trained these 12 in astronaut procedures. We didn't really know their final mission, but we did know that they were going into space. Uh, I didn't realize their fate until they returned. I read the classified report and first thought it was a work of fiction. But as I read the report, I realized these 12 men went to another planet, lived among aliens, and returned. Four died and eight returned. Actually, it was seven that returned. Three died and two decided to remain there. I just wanted, that's confirmation, I just wanted to read that to you. This person says, I cannot believe the DIA would allow someone to release this sensitive, highly classified operation without the proper approval. Uh, and he has one final letter I just want to read before we talk about the yellow book. Um, my father died in 1995. He was retired from the Air Force. In 1990, he told me a story about a special mission that he was involved in back in 65. He told me that this mission was about 12 military astronauts that went to another planet in a spaceship that was found in the New Mexico desert. He said the 12 men were trained at Tyndall Air Force Base, Florida, which is where they got the high altitude training. Uh, he, helped tra he helped train the 12, he, he helped train the, the 12 in space endurance which he was trained to do. He said that the 12 left in 1965 and came back in 1978, which is true. And he was there to check them after they returned to Earth. I don't know what to think about my dad. I didn't know what to think about my dad's story. Back then, I just listened to him and thought maybe he was just making it all up. But now I realize he was telling the truth. OK, the yellow book. This is what they gave to us when they landed. Uh, this is just a picture I took off the internet. Uh, I don't know what it, the book, the book itself looked something like that. Um, here's, what the, here's what Anonymous says about the yellow book. He said, it isn't exactly a book, it is a block of material approximately two and a half inches thick and transparent in nature and appearance. Uh, the reader looks at the transparent surface and suddenly words and pictures appear. It is an endless series of historical stories and photographs of our universe, the even planet, and their, form, and their former home world. They were not native to Serpo. They, we'll talk about that later. And other interesting stories about the universe. It also contains a historical narrative and various accounts about Earth's history and our distant past. To this day, I am one of the very few people who has actually seen and read the Yellow Book. This is an anonymous talking. I can assure you that Robert Collins has not ever seen, viewed, nor read any part of it. His name does not appear on the briefing control access roster. Uh, when you place the book close to your eyes, you will begin seeing words and images flashing before you. Depending on the particular language that you are thinking, that particular language will appear. So far, the US government has identified 80 different languages that could be used with the Yellow Book. Pictures also appear. The Yellow Book tells the story of the Ebens' lives, their exploration of the universe, their planet, their societal life, and other aspects, including Uh, it tells of their first visit to Earth about 2,000 years ago. 
It displays Earth as it was in those days. It also shows an Eben who looked, took the appearance of an Earth human. Now, this is controversial because Anonymous got the feeling they were talking about Jesus at that point and making the claim that Jesus was an Eben, but that wasn't the case. That got cleared up. But in any case, they knew about the advent of a great spiritual teacher, and that was in the Yellow Book. The Yellow Book goes on and on and on. I've spent 12 hours a day for three consecutive days and still never reached the end. I don't think anyone knows how long it goes on or that there was any way to find the end of the book. There is no known end to the Yellow Book. I understand the record is about 22 straight hours, which was done by, presidents, by the president's scientific advisor until the, I think it's till the Eisenhower administration, not till the Eisenhower, that would be till uh, Clinton, perhaps the Clinton administration. And there is no known way to stop reading in one particular place, put down the yellow book and then resume, it, and then resume where you left off. You can't do that. Once you put it down, you have to start again from the beginning. <laughs> no markers, can't use markers for this thing. Once you put it down, the book starts from the beginning. Although the book can somehow determine the language of the person who is reading it, it cannot determine the uniqueness of that person. So that's the yellow book. And he says also, uh, the yellow book goes back to around 2,000 years. However, I, I have not viewed the entire yellow book and don't think anyone else has either. It may have some views that go way back beyond 2,000 years ago probably does. Well, as the training came to an end, the men were told where they were going, and uh, needless to say, they were shaking in their boots <laughs> when they told they were going to a planet 39 light years away. One of them said he would prefer to be removed from the program, and they told him that if they did let him stay here, he would have to spend the entire 10 years at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, in an, in effect, effectively in jail, because they didn't want him out talking to anybody. So he said, okay, I'll go. So he went. Uh, in the movie Close Encounters, uh, we know that the aliens landed on top of that uh, so-called devil's, devil's Tower, but actually this is where they landed they, 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 in, the, uh, in that particular visit in April of 64, they said, we don't want to take your people yet. We can't take them right now. So the 12 astronauts are sitting in a bus waiting. We have everything ready to load. And they said, no, uh, we'd rather take our 12 dead. At that point it was, let's see, how many were dead at that point? Nine dead, 10 dead uh, bodies with us, and we'll come back next year, in 1965. So this created a vast, uh, uh, a vast problem for the team. They had to go back to Leavenworth and stay there until, for a whole year until they returned. They didn't stay there the entire year. They went back to Camp Perry for a while and continued with the language training. And uh, all, the, all the equipment had to be warehoused for that year until they returned. So uh, they did return in uh, 1965 on July the 16th, and this, this time they landed correctly at the Nevada test site. 
And uh, this is where they took on the 12 astronauts. And of course, Spielberg uh, had a lot of it right. He, uh, he had the information. It's clear that he had the information. He knew about the whole story. And he jumped on it. And how he knew is anyone's guess. My guess is that Anonymous was, this, was the deep throat and gave him the story in 1976. And Spielberg, who had been interested in science fiction from, from the age of like five, was making, he made his first science fiction movie at the age of, uh, I think, 13 or 14 in Arizona. Of course, of course he wanted to do this. And he actually, he actually started planning this movie before Jaws. And he'll talk about that in a minute. I'll, tell you, I'll show you that. Uh, of course, we all know. You want to play that, Terry? took us to the outer limits of a brilliant filmmaker's imagination. The road over 100 million people have taken and will want to take again. The road millions of others will take for the first time. But now the road will take us all even farther. Coming this summer to theaters everywhere, a special edition of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Director Steven Spielberg has filmed additional scenes designed to expand the total experience of the original motion picture. Now Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary will share with audiences all over the world the experience of being inside. When we saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind for the first time, we wanted more. Now there is more. So that's for the special edition. And you can see there that uh, they, they already know something's, there's something to this story. Here's the scene, I think many of you will recognize this, where they're being briefed for the final briefing and the blessing by the, by the minister, the 12 people. And uh, you know, when you, when you saw this movie in 1977, how many really believed that these guys were actually going to, that we were sending them? Anybody think that? Nobody thought that at the time. But here we, now we know why they were wearing orange uniforms. And now we know, this was the, this was the greeter the, in the movie. He looks a little bit like an Eben, but he's not really an Eben. And now we know why they were wearing those high-powered sunglasses, don't we? Uh, they knew that Serpo had two suns in the sky. They had perpetual daylight, and it was very bright. The only way Spielberg could have given them these glasses was if he, if he had that information. And obviously, he had the information. They took 90,000 pounds of equipment. They took uh, three Jeeps. They took 10 combat motorcycles. They took a dosimeter. This is, a, this is on the left, lower left 
used to check radiation. They wore those on their belts. They were all given 45 caliber pistols. Why? What are they going to do with them on a distant planet? But military people always had to have armaments with them, you know? <laughs> That's the way it goes. They, had, they actually had rifles, too. And they had this field telephone made by Motorola for communications. So that's, that's how it added up to 90,000 pounds. Actually, the equipment, the entire equipment list, all the music tapes they took with them, every piece of equipment is on my website. It's on the Serpo website. If anybody's interested, it's all there. They took recordings by Pat Boone. They took classical recordings. They also took recordings of Tibetan chants. Why? Why would they take recordings of Tibetan music? Because they knew from EBE number one that was their music on Serpo. They liked these, they liked the chants. So they took those with them. This is the boarding from Close Encounters. You all remember that. You want to play that, Terry? Here's Spielberg talking about it. Let's see what he has to say. I had been doing writing on Close Encounters before Jaws, so Jaws actually came after I began working on some kind of a conceptual narrative on how to tell a story about UFOs and Watergate and kind of putting that together. Certainly before Watergate, my whole concept was the UFO phenomenon in contemporary America, then after Watergate it was, of course, it's going to be a government conspiracy and the UFO phenomenon wrapped into one. What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people? This was ongoing. This was, you know, through the Jaws process and then through post-production on Jaws. It was just a movie I was going to make next. I didn't know if I could get it financed because people were balking at financing it before Jaws. But I had two producers. I had Julia Phillips and Michael Phillips, who were very strong producers. They had produced Taxi Driver and they had produced the, uh, the Sting. They were very supportive of me and pretty much said to me, don't worry, we're going to get the financing for this. Uh, just figure it out. For one thing, I didn't believe it was science fiction. I didn't coin this, but I, I was liberally saying, this isn't science fiction, this is science speculation. Because I had a real deep-rooted belief that we had been visited. And in this century, I was a real sort of UFO devotee in the 1970s and was really into the whole UFO phenomenon from everything I was reading. So it was something for me that was science. This is a flying saucer. That's the one I saw. Now, I've revised my thinking. As I grew up, I got a little bit older and began to understand that with all the video cameras in the world today, why have UFO sightings diminished? Now, with all those shutters clicking, where is the indisputable photographic evidence? When before the camcorder craze, UFO sightings were flourishing. And so I'm a little more skeptical now than I was in the 70s when I made the picture. But I, I, I really believed it. And so for me, it was about research, reading books on the matter, and eventually meeting my breakthrough partner. When I say breakthrough partner, he didn't write the screenplay with me, but he inspired the title. And that's J. Allen Hynek, Dr. J. Allen Hynek who was the Project Blue Book debunker working for the military as a civilian consultant, going around and looking at all these UFO stories and finding astronomical, natural, logical explanations for what people were perceiving to be extraordinary or extraterrestrial. And he was bringing everything down to a terrestrial level until finally 
he just couldn't explain about 10% of the sightings. And the 10% of the sightings he couldn't explain were so compelling, the witnesses themselves were so compelling, that he eventually resigned his position to pursue an investigation and a lot of writing on the entire UFO phenomenon. And I called him up and I had read his book and he's the one that shared his title with me, which is why I called the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And the Close Encounters of the Third Kind are the most interesting of all. Initially, my producing partners in the studio thought I was crazy because they, they said it has no meaning. What does it mean? Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What does that mean? Close Encounters of the Third Kind is really when you meet them. And so one of my biggest struggles, it turned out, was not getting the film financed, because after Jaws, everybody was willing to offer me financing for my next picture. It was getting my title through the marketing department at Columbia Pictures. Have you recently had a close encounter? But I remember when I wrote the script, I kind of wrote it backwards. I started with the landing and then tried to back the rest of the story into how do they get there? And how can we have an operatic third act encounter between them and us in a beautiful musical way? Because the idea of music was just something I thought, well, mathematics is a way of communicating with perhaps another species from off the planet. But, but mathematics is also music. You know, I thought, wouldn't it be great if the math basically is musical math and they start to communicate with each other through lights, colors, and musical tones. So all this was, you know, out of order in my brain, but it found order when I began to write the script from the last scene backwards. I just want to know that it's, it's really happening. I think in casting Close Encounters, what I was really looking for. So there's uh, Steven Spielberg's story. Uh, by the way, he wrote the script in one weekend I had been doing writing at the Sherry Neverland Hotel Jaws. So Jaws actually came after I began working uh, on it. The only way he could have done there. that is if he had already had the whole story in front of him. He claims that he rewrote a script written by another screenwriter who uh, didn't really write science fiction scripts. He wrote more, uh, uh, I think he wrote one about boxing and things like that, violent mafia movies. So Spielberg, so the, the, uh, the producers bought that screenplay from him and gave it to Spielberg and said here, but it, that particular script did end with a man going off with aliens to another planet. And so they bought that and Spielberg rewrote it in one weekend at the Sherry Netherlands Hotel in New York. Now, it takes months to write a screenplay. I know because I do write screenplays. And uh, for him to have written that script, starting backwards, as he said, in one weekend, he must have had the whole story in front of him when he wrote it. It's the only way he could have done it. Screenwriting is an arduous, arduous job. Okay, so. The 12 men are ready to go. The, aircraft, the ship lands, and uh, the team commander takes a poll of the 11. They're now on board the uh, craft. The consensus is, we're going to go. We go. They said, let's go. 
They enter and sit on three four-man benches, each with a restraining bar but no seat belts. We know why there's no seat belts now. They're too big for the alien seats. They get dizzy on takeoff. They rendezvous, they rendezvous with the mothership after about six hours. The mothership is massive. They fly right into it. They enter a room with a 100-foot ceiling. They are required to sit in a private room on the huge craft inside individual, individual transparent spheres containing seating and sleeping facilities. Uh, the spheres are connected with wires to the floor. They have three lights at the entrance, red, green, and white. The floor lights are flashing. The white light is on when the sphere is open, and the red light is on when it is locked. The green light is never explained. They are given metal containers to use to relieve themselves. The aliens don't relieve themselves the way we do. And so they were given pots, chamber pots, to use, and uh, the aliens emptied them for them. Whenever they leave the spheres, they become nauseous and dizzy. Only their backpacks are accessible. The rest of the stuff, 90,000 pounds of stuff, is stored underneath another area. The commander wakes up and opens his bowl. He walks around and looks at the others. They're all sleeping. He only counts 10 other occupied bowls. Someone is missing. The even mission commander enters and motions for him to get back into this bowl. They are now all locked shut. All have the red lights on. They're able to open the bowls from time to time and walk around this private room. When they're out of the spheres, they are sick, dizzy, and confused, and una unable to walk. Uh, the Eben mission commander brings them food. It tastes like paper, but they eat it since their sea rations are packed away. They have plenty of sea rations they brought with them, but they're not in their backpacks. The commander still doesn't know who is missing. The Ebens points a blue light at them when they are sick and they feel better. They all sleep for a long time. Uh, eventually, the team commander realizes that that missing person is probably dead. Uh, let's see. Finally, about the halfway point of the journey, which would have been about five months, the uh, Eben mission commander opens all the bowls. He motions for them to follow him. Uh, they, they are no longer dizzy or sick. They walk along a narrow hallway for about 20 minutes. Then they get into an elevator uh, and emerge into a large room. This is the control room. 24 Ebens are seated at control panels uh, with flashing lights. They're on different levels. The top level has only one Eben. Obviously, he is the pilot or the commander. The men wander around now without interference, and they're not sick anymore. Uh, there is one window. It is dark outside, but they are able to make out wavy lines. The commander concludes that they are moving faster than the speed of light, which was true, much faster. The, uh, the Eben mission commander enters the room and says they are now at the halfway point. He takes four of the men to the engine room. It consists of large metal containers arranged in a circle, connected to each other, and pointing inward at a metal coil. Uh, back in their private room, the commander points to the empty bowl and asks, who is missing? The Eben says, the Earth man is not living. He finds out that three is missing. They find him in a special bowl like a coffin. 
He appears to be dead. The commander asks the even MC to allow their doctors to examine 308. He refuses. He says that they may, he may have an infection. All the men agree that 308 appears to be dead. Uh, the commander orders the men to get their backpacks and ration belts and perform an inventory to see if anything is missing. He wants to keep them busy. The team commander, is, by the way, really reminds me, after reading this, of Captain Kirk, because he had everything under control. He was really a leader, true leader, and I found out later that he was an Air Force colonel. He was probably in his early 40s. We don't know. My guess was he was late to the early 40s. Okay. They get to the uh, planet Serpo, which they still don't know the name of it. A large door opens, bright light. We see this planet for the first time. We walk down the ramp. Large number of Evens waiting for us. We see a large Even, largest one we have seen yet. He comes forward and starts speaking to us. EB number one is a female who translates for them. She can speak English. Uh, she translates a welcome message from the leader. I guess this guy is the leader. This is the team commander writing in his diary. About one foot taller than the others. The leader tells us that we are welcome to his planet. He called us something we do not understand. EB-1 isn't doing a good job translating, but we are led to an open area. It looks like a parade field. Uh, the ground is dirt. Looking up, I see blue skies. The sky is very clear. We see two suns, one brighter than the other. The landscape looks like desert, Arizona or New Mexico. No vegetation that we can see. Rolling hills, but nothing but dirt. We landed in an open area with large structures like electrical towers. Something is sitting on top of these towers. On the center of the village is a large tower, looks like a concrete structure, very large, maybe 300 feet. Looks like a mirror is placed on top. or mud huts, some are larger than others. All the evens are dressed in the same clothing. I want to get past the trip. I use this uh, this slide for that because it it looks it looks like it probably was <laughs> what the alien ship looked like. Maybe I don't know. Uh, before we leave this, I want to talk about how they got there. They traveled through a wormhole. Ten months means that they were traveling at 40 times the speed of light. Okay? The only way that can happen is if they were traveling through wormholes, and we, we found that out later. And here's, here's what it looks like if you travel through a wormhole. You're cutting out all of that distance, uh, and you're going through a black hole to a white hole. And the, uh, the person that did this illustration used Alpha Centauri as an illustration. But that's the only way they could have gotten to a planet that was 39 light years away in 10 months. And that's why they all got dizzy and nauseous when they stepped outside of the sphere. I just want to cover that. Also, I want to talk about antimatter propulsion. They did see an antimatter uh, setup there in the, in the control room. How many of you have read Robert Lazar talking about antimatter? Do you all know about that? You know, he talked about antimatter. They did have it. When a, when, a, when, a, when a molecule of matter meets a molecule of antimatter and collides, tremendous amount of energy gets released. So they did have that also. And this is a mock-up of the, uh, Lazar was involved in helping to design this mock-up of what the antimatter would look like. Underneath that bowl, there's a, there's a slice of antimatter. So this is Arrival. This is the two suns that they see in the sky. This is the only slide we have. I believe this is actually legitimate. 
They took over 3,000 photos. This is the only one that somehow got released. And if you look in the lower left-hand corner, you can see they blocked out all the information about it. Uh, remember, the team commander did say that one sun was brighter than the other. And so it never got dark on Serpo. Never got dark. But it looks like a very monotonous desert landscape from this anyway. Now this picture, I think, I don't know if it's genuine or not. It appears to be. It says acclimation cleared. It says Serpo on it. And it says that this is the human habitat that they were put in when they arrived. By the way, they, had to, they stayed underground where it was cool. It was very hot when they landed. The temperature was 114 degrees. And it looks like this is the real thing because we have our guy talking to some aliens there. However, <laughs> this is crazy. That particular structure looks very much like a church in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I don't understand the, I don't understand the resemblance. So it could be fake. I don't know. I'm just showing it to you for what it's worth. Uh, it is acclimation cleared. Uh, the, uh, the team commander was very upset about not having 308's body, and it led to a confrontation. Uh, it looks like we're running out of time. I, gotta, I have to go fast here. Uh, the team commander said, I want to see the body. The Eben said, no, you can't see it. It doesn't exist anymore. He said, why not? They said, well, we used it. How did you use it? We use it to create other creatures. The team commander said, I want to see it. They said, no, you can't see it. The coffin is locked. He told, he told the security man to go get the explosives. He said, we're going to blow it up. We're going to blow it open. I want to see the body. He even said, don't, please, please. The, the woman, the translator said, please, no guns, no guns. I'll bring down the doctor. He'll talk to you. The doctor came down and talked to the team commander, spoke perfect English. No problem at all. He explained to them that they used the body parts of the human to create a clone, A, and to create other, other creatures. The team commander said, I want to see it anyway. Uh, he brought him into this uh, building where they had uh, these entities in tubs, the, create, the creatures in tubs that were all monstrous looking. Uh, the team commander couldn't couldn't stand looking at some. He was actually revolt, revolted by what he saw. He said, where is 308's clone? He said that he's in another building. They took him to another building, and there was this person standing with, he had, he had human hands and feet, but his body looked like an Eben. The team commander was completely disgusted by this whole thing. He didn't understand what was going on here. Uh, and so his comment was in his diary, I have seen the dark side of this civilization. To him, it was evil. To them, it was just science. They had roamed all over the galaxy. They had, if you recall, in, uh, in Colonel Corso's book, he mentions that there were human body parts on the, on the uh, craft that crashed at Roswell. That's well known now. Don Schmidt talks about it. Uh, they've collect, they collected human body parts from all over the galaxy and brought them into their laboratories. To the commander, it was evil. And he says, I have seen the dark side of this civilization. He got over it. And uh, they went on. And he realized that they had some very sophisticated biotechnology, which, was, which they did. I'm running very short on time. Uh, he, he said, I saw the dark side of this civilization. Don't panic. We're just here to do a little stem cell research. It was a police state. 
They were very much regimented. They, they wore little devices on their belt that told them what to do next every step of the way. The, the mirror on top of the tower, as it moved from, and the sun moved it on the ground, they would stop what they were doing and they would start doing something else. But they were all extremely intelligent and he assumed, and he, uh, they estimated the IQ of the Ebens to be about 180. This, uh, this was under the, the mirror tower. The, the, co the commander sketched this to show what, what it looked like on the ground as the sun moved, away, moved around. It was sort of like a, a, a sun clock, but it was much more sophisticated than that. They had learned how the Ebens loved to dance. They liked to play games. Uh, they tried to teach them baseball, but they couldn't get the idea that the ball was not allowed to hit the ground. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Football. Once it hit the ground, it was over. They, didn't, they couldn't get that through their heads. So, but they learned how to play some of these games. They were very, very uh, cooperative. Finally, after being on the planet for six years in the, in, the, in the equatorial region, which was extremely hot, they went to the northern quadrant and found out that it was very cool, looked like Montana. And eventually, they asked to be moved there, and they were. They even built them a little community up there in the northern quadrant. And that's how they, that's how they finished out their, their, uh, their stay there. Uh, they stayed for 13 years instead of 10 because they lost track of time. They learned about the even religious beliefs. I'll just cover that quickly. Do I have to quit at 10.30? What time do I have to do? Okay. They believed in life after death similar to that of the Roman Catholic Church, some Eastern religious doctrines. They thought that once an Eben dies, his soul or bioplasmic body is taken from the body by these sub-entities which they, we call saints or angels and cleansed of all sins. The soul is then taken to a midpoint, which the Catholics would call purgatory, between heaven and the, that midpoint. Once the soul is ready, it is taken to the supreme plateau where it remains for an eternity. However, uh, some souls called the arranged, that is their word, are prepared for entry back into living society. They even believe that if they perform some specific act, which we call karma, uh, during their regular life, they can then come back to the living life in another body, so reincarnation. So the Catholic Church, needless to say, is very pleased to learn this. And now they can take the position that they can be uh, baptized. Okay, let's keep going here. They found a snake that they could eat and they killed it. The Ebens were very upset. They don't like killing animals that way, but they were able to eat the snake. Uh, the snake was very, very sophisticated. The eyes were almost human. As they explored the planet, they saw other, other animals that were very strange looking. They had anti-gravity te uh, technology. The, uh, the cars floated above the surface. They didn't need tires. The helicopters didn't need rotors. They had particle beam weapons. They had been involved in a war that lasted 100 years, which they won using particle beam weapons. Okay. Let's can you uh, click that, Terry? Thank you all for your tremendous effort in carrying out this essential mission. 
Your findings will help combat the counter-democratic forces that are at work in the world today. And the technology you have returned with and the insight into the EBs is crucial to our ongoing effort. The fight to protect freedom and democracy has never been more important as it is today. Communism is expanding with nuclear threats from more and more nations. We are being visited by several groups of EBs. Some are confirmed hostile towards us. Others are confirmed benevolent. Project Serpo significantly improves our ability to understand the motivations of all the EBs more clearly. As you know, all of you did not return home. You endured extreme heat, time distortions, continual light, and a lack of proper nourishment. You served your country and peaceful democratic civilization with courage and honor. You will continue to do so. To complete the second phase of your mission, you'll be reassigned for debriefing. 102, 203, 225, and 308 to SR3, 700 and 754 to Walter Reed, 420 to Montauk. The ongoing existence of a peaceful democratic civilization depends on your ability to successfully transfer the insights that you have gained. We will all remain committed to this important work and the secrecy that it requires. Now, I always want to say this about that. It's, that seems real to me. How many people think that looks legitimate? I just want to get a show of hands. Well, he had his decorations on the wrong side and the wings. Uh, the guy standing behind him who was wearing fatigues, didn't look, they look current. But it's very, very accurate because Seven did return. He knew that. He knew the numbers. It could be real. I don't know. I'm just presenting it to you as a possibility, but somewhat skeptical. They were all debriefed for a solid year at Bowling Air Force Base. They came back nine times. The last one was in 2012. And I have a, a calendar to show that that's correct. It was a Sunday. Uh, the meeting of November 10th, we invited the Vatican. We invited the United uh, Nations. We invited the Russian Federation. We invited the Chinese people. We opened it up. They came back to this island called Johnston Island, which is really more, looks like an aircraft carrier to me. But that's a, that's a military island in the mid-Pacific that they landed at at that last uh, return. Okay, I want to show this. This is important. Can you click this one, uh, Terry? What Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray's source, Falcon, told us about aliens will astonish you. LBS Communications and Seligman Productions makes no claim in favor of or against the truth and accuracy of this material. We ask only that you watch and listen and make up your own minds. Now, if you feel a congressional investigation is warranted to get the facts about UFOs out to the American public, please call this 900 number. If you feel an investigation is not necessary, call this number. Bill Moore and Jamie Chanderay have checked and verified Falcons and Condor's credentials. Peter Leone also met Falcon, and here's his statement. I met with a government intelligent agent with the code name of Falcon in 1983 with Jamie and Bill at the time that I was an executive producer of news for the CBS station in Los Angeles. And at the time, we verified as authentic his credentials. And then again in 1987, we met again with Falcon and again verified his credentials. I'm satisfied at this time that he is who he says he is.
the fact that I have proven my identity to you, showed you my credentials, and verified my existence within the intelligence community. You also have some of my colleagues who have verified the same information. We asked Falcon where he found out so much about extraterrestrial biological entities, or EBEs. This book, or it's called the Bible within the MJ-12 community, contains historically everything that occurred from the Truman era up through the three aliens being guests of the United States government, technological data gathered from the aliens, medical history gathered from dead aliens, that were found in the desert. Autopsy information gathered from dead aliens found in the desert and information obtained from the extraterrestrials regarding their social structure and their information pertaining to the universe. Was there an additional source of information? Presently, as of the year 1988, there is one extraterrestrial being. He's a guest of the United States government, and he's remained hidden from public view. The Yellow Book is a book that was exclusively written by the second alien. The book relates to the alien's planet, solar system, suns, the culture, and society makeup on the planet the social structure of the aliens and the aliens' life among Earthlings. What was most intriguing to me in my experience with the aliens is a, I believe, an octagon-shaped crystal, which when held in the alien's hand and viewed by a second person, displays pictures. These pictures could be, can be of the aliens home planet or pictures of earth many thousands of years ago we asked where the ebe's came from he was in the uh, zeta reticuli star group now condor tells us about a deal our government made with the aliens uh, from what he understands an agreement signed between our, our u.s government and the extraterrestrials Essentially, the agreement uh, says that uh, we won't disclose your existence if uh, you do not interfere in our society. And uh, we allow you to operate from a designated uh, base here in the United States. It's in the state of Nevada in an area called Area 51 or Greenland. The extraterrestrials have complete control of this base, which is located in Nevada. My understanding is that three different aliens of the same species have resided within the United States from 1948 or 49 until present day. The first alien was captured in the New Mexican desert after its craft crashed. The alien, which was named Eva by the government, was kept in captivity for three years. We learned a great deal of information about the aliens, race, culture, and spacecrafts. 
the circuit to alien? Was it part of an exchange program? I don't recall what year that alien visited. The third alien was also part of an exchange program and has been a guest of the United States government since 1982. We asked what they looked like, you know, a run-of-the-mill EB. A creature about uh, three foot four to three foot eight inches tall. Uh, their eyes are extremely large, almost insect style. Uh, their eyes have a couple of different inner lids. The, uh, the days were extremely bright, uh, probably twice to three times as bright as ours. And I think they have just a, two uh, openings where our nose would be. They have a small mouth. Uh, they have no teeth as we know it. They have a hard gum-like uh, area. Uh, their internal organs are quite simple. They have a, a one organ which does the job of our heart and lungs. Their digestive system is, is really simple. Their uh, skin structure is extremely, uh, it's a very elastic skin and hard, probably hardening from their sun. Uh, they have some basic organs. Their brain is more complex than ours. It has a, uh, several different lobes than ours have. Uh, their eyes are where our eyes are controlled by the back of our head, theirs is controlled by the front of the brain. Their hearing is quite better than ours, almost better than the dog's small areas. Uh, their sexual organs are, they have males and females. Their kidney and bladder is one organ. They excrete waste. They have another organ, which I don't know if our scientists determined what it was for, but they believe it's to transfer the solid wastes and the liquid wastes. They have hands without thumbs. And four fingers without any thumbs. Uh, their feet are wood-like, small wood-like. So many questions occur. Do they believe in a supreme being? What's their intelligence level? What's their average lifespan? It's approximately 350 to 400 Earth years. It's my understanding that the aliens have an IQ of over 200. They have a religion, but it's a universal religion. They believe in the universe as a supreme being. The aliens enjoy music, all types of music, especially ancient Tibetan style music. We ask about their diet. They do eat vegetables. They like vegetables. And their favorite dish or snack is ice cream, especially strawberry. Well, the next time you're in an ice cream parlor, just quietly notice who orders strawberry, okay? As a wrap-up, Falcon and Condor said to us, I personally feel that this information should be presented to the public. There's only a small portion of the information that we've gathered from the extraterrestrials that should be safeguarded or classified. Condor also suggested he'd like to see a congressional hearing on the subject. Interestingly enough, he, Falcon, and a third source have agreed to meet with a senator's staff to discuss all of the information they claim to have concerning UFOs and aliens. From this meeting, a Senate investigation could ensue. Good luck with that. That's about it, folks.